0: Happy Monday and welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. Eight days out from the election, I'm Charlie Sykes. Well, there's like five things, at least five things, probably more like 10 things to talk about. But let's start with Trump running away from Leslie Stahl, uh, Pence World testing positive, the administration apparently surrendering on containing the pandemic. Senate gets ready to confirm Amy Coney Barrett to the Supreme Court, and Trump is planning another uh, public swearing in event. What could go wrong? And we seem to be in the middle of this major voter revolution. So our special guest today, John Heilman, host of Showtime's The Circus Executive Editor of The Recount
1: and a certifiable dog guy. Can we start with the dog guy thing there, John? Oh, my God. Yes, of course. Everything in my life starts with the dogs. I mean, other than yeah. the things that start with my wife, but um, the dogs are pretty big, are pretty big, uh, pretty big factor. I have two Great Danes. Yeah, no, um, well. We talked about this because you, you were actually one of the few people who've actually been in my house
0: yes. since, since the pandemic. And so you were there. So you got to meet my dogs or two of my dogs, Yeah, the, 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 the puppy we couldn't trust to behave. But um, I, I
1: could tell you were into the dogs and, and, they, and they were completely comfortable with you, which is amazing to me. They were very sweet, your dogs, Charlie, and um, and yes, I mean dogs know dog people, right? And they do. If, and when they sense someone who is a dog person, they immediately like just can't help but be infatuated. And and you know, you can't be more of a dog person than someone who has three hundred pounds of dog in your house. You know, that's like that. Great Danes are a special thing. It's like you have. I mean, it's one thing to be a dog person. It's another person. It's another thing to be a person who's comfortable around two dogs. That. You know, who weigh in at 150 pounds each, and they are because just because of their size, and and they have big personalities, they feel more like humans than dogs, oh, yeah. right? Because they occupy space that's like human sized. They're a presence. So, yes, they, the are pre- they are. They are presence in your <laughs> life. Um, and people look at us and think we're fucking crazy to have two dogs of that size, but I would not trade them for the world. They are fantastic.
0: Well, we have three dogs, and one of them is getting bigger all the time. So I was just doing the calculation, probably. I don't have, well, I probably like two, 270 pounds worth of dogs. And yeah. every once in a while, my wife and I will say, well, where did all this dog hair come from? Why can't we keep the floors clean? You know? And it's like, okay, you, you could have this uh, elegant lifestyle, or you could have dogs, and we have dogs. Right. So, yeah. and, and so people, if, if people ask, so what is John Heilman really like? Uh, I will say my dogs liked him. So, yes.
1: And that's um, and that's basically it. That's all you need to know. It is. OK,
0: so let's start. There's so many things to start with the eight days out from the election. But uh, the 60 Minutes uh, interview last night, the president oh, of the United States walks out on Leslie Stahl after a rather I won't say super contentious. I mean, she was asking him tough questions, which he did not want to have to answer. So here's about two minutes of what we will call the Trump meltdown walkout. All right, let's listen to this.
2: You know, this is 60 Minutes. And we can't put on things we can't but verify. not put it
3: on because it's bad for Biden. We can't yep, put on
2: things we can't verify. Leslie, they spied
3: on my campaign. Well, we can't verify It's been totally that. verified. No, it's been just go down and get the papers. They spied on my campaign. They got caught. No. And then they went much further than that, and they got caught. And you will see that, Leslie. And you know that, but you just don't want to no, put it on the air. No.
2: As a matter of fact, I don't know that. Okay. And you're out so there. So why
3: don't you get back to your interview and let's go.
2: Do you think that your tweets and your name calling are turning people off?
3: No, I think I wouldn't be here if I didn't have social media. But the media is fake. And frankly, if I didn't have social media, I'd have no way of getting out my voice. Do
2: you know what you told me a long time ago when I asked why you keep saying fake media? Yeah. You said to me, I say that because I need to uh, discredit you. So that when you say negative things about me, no one will believe you. I don't you. have
3: to discredit you. But that's what You've you told me. You've discredited yourself.
2: You know, I didn't want to have this
3: kind of, of angry. Of course you did. No, I didn't. Of course you no, did. No, I didn't. Well, then you brought up a lot of subjects that well, I said were I'm going to ask you tough up. questions. They were inappropriately but brought up. Right from the beginning. No, your first question was, "This is going to be tough questions." Why? You don't ask Joe Biden. I saw your interview with Joe, the interview with I Joe never Biden. did a Joe Biden interview. It was Biden a joke. Interview. The interview, 60 minutes. I see Joe Biden giving softball after softball. I've seen all of his interviews. He's never been asked a question that's hard.
2: Okay, but forget him for a minute. No, but you you're start with me. You're president.
3: You're and- president. Excuse me, Leslie. You started with me. Your first statement was, are you ready for tough questions? Are you? That's no way to talk. There's no way to talk.
0: Leslie, one, one
3: second.
2: At this point, one of our producers interrupted
3: to advise about the time remaining in the interview. I think we have enough of an interview here, Hope. Okay, that's enough. Let's go. Let's go. Uh, let's go meet for two seconds, okay? Thanks. I'll see you in a little while. Thanks.
0: And there it goes. So John Heileman.
1: <laughs> what what happened jerk. there? What a jerk. He's just <laughs> such a jerk. Um I, what happened there? I, yeah, it's a little unclear. I mean, you know, the reality is that Leslie is citing an interview of hers with him that is is was, you know, memorable. Um I believe that interview took place right after yeah. he got elected in 2016 when she raised with him the question of like why he Mao Mao's the media so much and he basically came right out at that point a less a less practiced maybe, or a more, uh, a more open Donald Trump in the flush with victory, kind of just acknowledged the truth, which was, you know, I, I invade, invade against the, the fake media because it serves my political interest to try to discredit the mainstream media. And he said it right out to her. And now she's kind of saying to him, well, you know, reminding him of what he said to her. And he's like, pretending like he can't remember it. And I look, I, you know, and there's no politician I've ever covered in 30 years or so in doing this who, if I said, I'm going to have some tough questions for you today, where they wouldn't just be like, all right, bring it on. You exactly. Know? Um, um, and Trump, you know, the president of the United States who, who is belittles people, abuses people, mocks people, um, treats, you know, anybody who's not uh, fully uh, a member of the of the cult of Trump, he treats them all like shit. Um, The idea that like just a journalist from 60 Minutes would say, "Hey, there's got some tough questions coming here," that that would somehow set Trump off, I think is a sign of how off his game he is, as much as anything else. Yeah, I think that's really what this what this speaks to is that Trump uh, gets that he is in a huge amount of trouble, that he's probably heading for defeat. It's sinking in with him, and it's he's it's flipping him out. You know, I
0: think that's right because I I. You, you could, of course, you know, overlay some sort of strategy that the, this is you know his chance to stand up against the, the media, which, of course, is, is the red meat, blah, blah, blah. But he's got all the people who hate the elite media. He walked in there in a bad mood. He was already yes. in a bad mood. That was yes. real anger, his inability to control himself, the fact that he couldn't even go through the motions of, you know, being, you know are you willing to answer tough questions? And I don't know. He seems to have a real problem with with women. Question, with women yes i was yes. going to yeah exactly There's there's yes. something about that that offends him that he, that he can't handle jonathan swan was throwing yes. hard high
1: hard ones at him and he didn't walk out from jonathan swan's interview right and i think there's some cumulative thing though that's also going on yes i 1000% think that he has a problem with with women um reporters and he has he's demonstrated that over and over again i do think there's also a cumulative thing though where you know, I don't know what got into his head that he thought he would agree to this interview and that it wouldn't be like this, but I think, you know, he did not, it did not escape his notice that the Jonathan Swan interview was uh, widely seen as having been a disaster for him, that he got in a room with a non-Fox News, non-Cult of MAGA uh, interviewer who asked him, again, very straight up, you know, not, I mean, no Jonathan Swan brought no, nothing but the facts into that interview but it was horrible for Trump and everyone around Trump thought it was horrible for Trump. And they told him they thought it was horrible for Trump. And I can't help but think that the Jonathan Swan thing was ringing in his ears. He walked into that interview, as you say, Charlie, you can hear it in his voice Mm -hmm. and you could see Mm -hmm. it. He was seething from the moment it started. Like he walked in with just in the worst place. And I don't know if Leslie Stahl had not said, I'm going to ask you tough questions. I still think he would have found some way to get teed off and walked out of that thing. I just, he looked like he was a... He was like vol- like a volcano about ready to explode from the moment he walked in the door of that interview. And again, I that's why I think it speaks to a larger thing, which is the walls are closing in. He knows it's crumbling. He knows that it's that his time uh, is short now, and and everything is setting him off. I think in a way that that uh, must make him an absolute nightmare to live with.
0: And he really does seem to, in these final days, be enveloping himself in his alternative reality bubble. Um, that this campaign is about sort of self care and self self comforting, so it's more jarring <laughs> for him. I was um, going to say
1: self pleasuring,
0: as I think we're well, okay. That, for that, him. That, it, it does feel like that. I mean, <laughs> what else are the rallies about? It other than self pleasuring? Because yes. they're actually not helping him politically. <laughs> the coverage no. is deadly, and yet he wants. And you can see just the way he's he's just sort of free associating and the kinds of things that, that he that he's saying that he's really not listening to anyone who's telling him, Mr. President, you have to be disciplined you can't right. say
1: shit like that. Right. Well, it also it gets to the thing, I know you want to talk about the debate, but I think yeah. it's, it's, the, it's the most vivid example of it, right? Because you think about how much time, effort and energy they spent flogging the Hunter Biden, I'm putting big mm. quote marks around scandal, the Hunter Biden laptop thing, right? And they, it was like, this was going to be it. We're going to get to Nashville. That's going to be the center of police of the debate. They brought Uh, Mr. Bobulinski out there. And he was, you know, the replay of the 2016 uh, incident in the second debate when they, when Steve Bannon brought the, the Clinton, the Bill Clinton Mm -hmm. sexual assault accusers to that debate. And that they, in their mind, that was what helped turn it all around and, and, and turn the corner from Access Hollywood. So here we are going to replay 2016 again, and it's gone from lock her up to lock him up. And from the Clinton from crooked Hillary to the Biden crime family and they get this guy to go and they drag the press pool in there to, to, to talk to the guy and he, he lays out his accusations. And now we get to the debate stage. And when Trump talked about it in the debate, it was just utterly impenetrable, total gobbledygook. Like You couldn't make hide nor hair out of what he was saying and why. Why was because every, every kind of talismanic phrase that he would use related to the Hunter Biden thing was only decipherable if you are a Fox News, Breitbart, Sinclair consumer. Like all of those things, he was saying taglines that to that crowd means something. But to no normal person who's unfamiliar with the crazy web of conspiracies theories around Hunter Biden, it means nothing. So if you listen to the actual words he said in the debate when he tried to land those hits on Joe Biden, you're like, what is he talking about? It's just utterly incomprehensible. And I think that is a reflection of... The cocoon, you know, mm-hmm. the bubble that he's enveloped in, because that means something if you're, uh, if you're Tucker, you know, and you're, or you're, well, you watch Hannity every night, and, you know, some of those things mean something to you. Barisma, oh, okay, I know what he means by that. You know, for most normal people, they're like, what? Well, little, it just was gibberish. Uh, and I think the combination of him being in that hermetically sealed environment that talks to itself all day long, and his lack of preparation for the debate, because if you're going to make those hits work. You got to like figure out how to explain them in a way that a large 70 million people or 50 million people, whatever it was that watched the debate, that they can understand. But he doesn't you know, take the time to, to, to work on a hit to make it like comprehensible to a mass audience. And that's another reason why that debate did not do what he needed to do in that debate, which was to really transform the central dynamics of the race in a way that would change the trajectory in, in his favor. Well
0: I, I I thought he also benefited from the punditry of low expectations that so here he comes out, he's 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 incoherent on the on the Hunter Biden issue. He tells you know another, you know, stream of lies, he justifies his own cruelty with the children on the border and yet, because he's not like spitting on his shoes, it's like, well, he was way better than we expected. So that turns things around. I mean, you, you, you read the Trump world, uh, the, the MAGAverse uh, take on that. It was like, what a big win for the guy. In this, are you kidding me?
1: You had, a, you had a great
0: line, by the way, about the, the difference between debate number one and debate
1: number two. Yes, uh, my my immediate reaction was that 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 quaalude Trump is better than crystal meth Trump, um, <laughs> but still not very good, right? I mean, <laughs> quaalude Trump is not winning Trump, but um, quaalude Trump is more palatable, mildly more palatable than like Royd rage Trump, right? Where you know the first debate was really, um, that was really was meth Trump, right? And and I you know if you turn Trump down like from a seventy eight RPM record down to forty five RPMs down to thirty three it doesn't make him a better debater and doesn't make him a more effective politician, but it makes it just slightly more palatable when he's at a slower, at a slower, more syrupy speed. And you could see at the top of that debate, boy, was he, you know, they had obviously beaten into his head the notion of, you know, you must be different than you were in that first debate. Because Charlie, you know, you know, that first debate was bad for him in a very, very particular way, which is that even hardcore conservatives were turned off by it. And, you know, everyone who was doing dial groups in the conservative world saw like, wow. This is how bad Trump it was in this debate. He's so bad that he's turning off his own base, which is something he's been unable to do over the course of the last four years, but that's how bad that first debate was.
0: Well, except for the folks who thought he was an apex predator. Um, but I think that's, that's Dan Bongino or something yes, like yes. that. So you, have already answered the main question, whether that debate actually did what it had to do for, for Trump. And I, again, there, there's a lot of, uh, you know, patting themselves on the back, but uh, I, I don't see any evidence that in fact, it did, did change anything. They think they might've scored some points on Joe Biden's comments the about the, the, the energy industry. Um, that was Thursday. It's Monday. I haven't seen how much how much they've weaponized it on television. Your sense whether that changes anything, puts Pennsylvania in jeopardy.
1: Well, I think uh, no. I think um, I do think that it was bad answer by Joe Biden. Mm-hmm. I do think that that in a that you know it's, it gave it gave it was not a good answer by Joe Biden. It gave Trump something to work with. I'm sure that they uh, in places like Texas, which are now shockingly close, in places like Pennsylvania, I'm sure they are weaponizing mm-hmm. it with local media and. It's not helpful to the Biden campaign. That said, I don't think in in a, in a race where 50 as of Friday, 55, 54, 55 million votes had already been cast uh, and where the number, the, the number of undecideds in the electorate are, is, is so tiny at this point um, that a thing like that is going to uh, turn the tide. Look, it, it, if it turns out that this election is much closer than the data suggests it's going to be. And again, we're all scarred by 2016. And so yeah. we we stare in the face of all this overwhelming data that suggests that uh, Biden is on his way to a clear and convincing victory. And we say, oh, I don't know if I can say that right, right now because, man, I don't want to be proven wrong again. But the reality is, look, if the race turns out to be razor thin in Pennsylvania, another you know 65,000 votes uh, between the two of them, maybe we'll look back and say, Man, that energy answer could have been, was really important, but I just don't, at this moment, don't think that's where we're headed.
0: So, uh, are you are you buying the the Texas is in play issue? Um, it's there's you know the, the polls would indicate that it's tightening. Um, but but Trump is not going to Texas, right? Have I have I missed anything that he's doing? He's doing a Hillary Wisconsin play. Is that I'm not going to yeah. go to Texas because that would signal weakness here. So, do you think that Texas and Georgia are for real, or is this just a little irrational
1: exuberance? No, I think Texas and Georgia are both for real in the sense that I think they're both in play. And I think Trump's attitude is not that it would signal weakness. I tr- think Trump's attitude that is that if if he loses in Texas and Georgia, he's already lost every place else. So That's why true. waste time there? You know, um, those are those are not going to be the states that are the two hundred seventy first electoral vote for Joe Biden or the two hundred seventieth electoral vote. They're going to be the four hundredth electoral vote, and Trump's got bigger problems um, on his hands than than those. Uh, but I, you know, I look at the Biden campaign has been remarkably disciplined for the last six months in saying, we are not going to take our eye off the ball of the core six um, of Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, North Carolina, Florida and Arizona. We're not going to spend candidate time in any of those other of any of these reach states. We're not going to Georgia. We're not going to Iowa. We're not going to Ohio. And we're not going to go to Texas, no matter how much you beg us to do it. And now all of a sudden, as we sit here, the two things that have happened, right? One is this week, Joe Biden's now going to Georgia. And Kamala Harris is going to Texas mm-hmm. later this week. So, they're, you know, maybe they suddenly have lost their discipline at the last moment, but that doesn't strike me as, as reality. I think they are, see some glimmer of possibility there. And the main thing in Texas that makes me think that Texas is genuinely in play is the behavior of one Senator, John Cornyn, who I'm sure you've covered this on the mm-hmm. podcast, Charlie, because it was so striking when Cornyn decided to put distance in between himself and Trump on the question of COVID. I mean, John Cornyn has never said a negative thing about Donald Trump for four years. And to see Cornyn saying, uh, putting distance between himself and Trump in the closing days of this campaign is the clearest sign that John Cornyn is looking at internal numbers that show he's in trouble. Not that he's guaranteed to lose, but that MJ Hagar is, 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 that he is in jeopardy of losing that seat. That's the only thing that would compel Cornyn to say those things. I think there's a lot of discussion about whether Cornyn may try to distance himself even further from Trump in the next seven days or so. And I think if John Cornyn is in trouble in Texas, Donald Trump's in trouble in Texas. So that gives me a sense that uh, Texas is, I don't think, you know, by any means do I think what I bet that, that, that Trump is going to lose it. But I do think that it must be, it is, you know, tight enough now that it, the signs from both what the Biden campaign is doing and what Republicans are doing there that it's that it's real, that's real. And and it's now a toss up. Yeah, I don't know who's going to win on Texas. But you do sense that the sort of demographic
0: fate of the Republican Party is uh, is, on, is on speed dial right now that that things that they thought that might be able to hold off until 2040 are happening right now. The fact that yes. George is in play, the fact that, yes. they're, that Arizona is probably gone, the fact that Texas is gone. Uh, you know, th- this this is what your demographic future looks like, if not this year, then pretty
1: soon yeah that's right and i think you know you think uh you know the the four kind of republican the four democratic reach states i think right now georgia is you know the four the other four the other two in addition to georgia and texas right are ohio and iowa mm-hmm. and those states also have been you know for states that donald trump won by eight and nine points respectively um those states have been remarkably close for the last few months but even so i think if you asked uh the 50 smartest democratic strategists you know uh, they would all say that the most likely of those four states to go democratic now is Georgia, which really could have flipped in wow. the way that when Obama won Virginia in 2008, I don't know if it'd be like this, 2008 now seems like ancient history, but I was talking yeah. to Pluff about, David Pluff about this the other day. People thought Obama was nuts to devote a lot of time, effort, and energy to campaigning in Virginia. It was a red state, you know, mm-hmm. and the notion that a an African-American first-term senator was going to be competitive in Virginia, let alone win it seem crazy to people, but they saw demographic change in Virginia of the kind where they thought this state could kind of not be purple. This state could go quickly from red to blue in the blink of an eye. And that turned out to be true. Obama wins it in 2008. He wins in 2012. He wins it relatively easily in, in both cases. And now Virginia is a blue state. It never really was a purple state. It went from red to blue. There's a lot of Democrats who look at Georgia in the same way and just say, and see the demographic change that's happened there and in combination with COVID, that this is a state that was red, 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 and that this cycle could suddenly flip instantly over the line without ever passing. Do not pass go, right? Do not go through the purple phase, but you could see Biden winning there. You could see Purdue losing there. You could see Leffler losing there, and suddenly you've got two two Senate seats. I'm not predicting all of those things right. will happen, but but there is a scenario by which you know, if that were to transpire, and I, I have much less uh, faith or much less sense of, not faith, but I think the second Georgia Senate seat, the Kelly Leffler seat is a a much different thing. It's going to be, because of that, it's going to be a runoff situation in the, and turnout in January, who knows what that'll be like. But if, if Biden wins and Ossoff wins in Georgia, you could, that state could become blue and never turn back because the demography there is changing so rapidly and it just, Snuck up on everybody, and you went, "Whoa, hey, wait, what happened here?" You know, welcome to the future. Welcome to the future.
0: So the the, the present, the next eight days, clearly, the coronavirus pandemic is dominating the is dominating the campaign. Trump knows it. There's nothing he can do about it. You had uh, Mark Meadows going on CNN (laughs) yesterday. What a remarkable interview where he basically says, yeah, we're not going to be able to control the pandemic. We're focusing on on the vaccines, which is being interpreted by a lot of folks, including me, as essentially giving up on on this. I was struck by this Politico headline that says Mark Meadows comments undermine Trump's message. I I disagree with that. I think it was an exclamation point on the fact that Donald Trump is completely bored with this and he's engaging in the magical thinking and he's making no effort whatsoever to control it, which is why he's having the super spreader events. And so I'm looking at your site, the recount, you tweeted this out. This is my favorite quote of the weekend. Okay. Trump at a North Carolina rally, turn on television, COVID, 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 (laughs) COVID. A plane goes down 500 people dead. They don't talk about it. COVID, COVID, COVID. By the way, on November fourth, you won't hear about it anymore.
1: It's the craziest, craziest shit in the world, right? <laughs> uh, again, I mentioned that I talked to David Pluff the other day for for my podcast, my relatively mm-hmm. new podcast, Hell and High Water. And, and Pluff said in this forthcoming episode, he said it's like saying, you know, up to Franklin Delano Roosevelt, like you shouldn't talk about the Depression or World War II yeah. because you know we've heard too much about that. People are tired of hearing about World War II and the Depression, right? I mean, you know, I mean it's so ridiculous on so many levels. Uh, But it is the, it is the reality, right? This will, history will record that 2020 was the COVID election and with good reason. And I think, you know, you think about everything that Trump, why is Trump attracted to Scott Atlas, this doctor who is not an epidemiologist, not an infectious disease specialist, but someone who likes this idea of herd immunity and they are what Meadows is telling you is that they have adopted, Yes, they, they, they insist that herd immunity is not what they're doing, but it is in fact the policy they're pursuing, de facto herd immunity. And why does Trump like that theory? Because it allows him, not, it allows him to basically say, I'm not going to think about this anymore. He's bored with it. He knows it hurts him. He knows there's nothing he can do about it now. And so there's some kind of ex post facto rationalization that says, well, here's a theory that allows me to do what I want, which is pretend this isn't a problem and move on. But, but that kind of quote, like that North Carolina quote is indicative exactly right what you said a second ago, Charlie, which is, it's not, you know, it's not a gaff. It's in like, except in the Kinsley sense, Mike Kinsley sense of a gaffe, which is, you know, you're saying, acknowledging an uncomfortable reality, which is that that is what they, what they think at this point. And it is an exclamation point, not, you know, an undermining of Trump's message. It's the apotheosis of Trump's message, yes. which is, you know, you know, I'm done with this, moving on. Even as we now see projections that we could have another 200 or 150,000 dead Americans by February. By February. So this is the problem with herd
0: immunity is that herd immunity works if you have a vaccine that's working. Otherwise, you're talking about mass death. Yes. Um, people in my demographic. And so, you know, you can give all kinds of speeches about like, I'm, I'm sending you free money, senior citizens or what, you know, suburban women like me. But this is basically saying I'm, I'm going to, you know, learning to live with it means learning to live with lots of people dying. So, but the car, where did the plane crash come from?
1: Yeah, I First don't know. <laughs> there, there's no plane crash, right? There's no plane crash. He's it's, watching OAN, Charlie, there's probably okay. a plane crash on OAN, or he caught, he caught an episode of Lost on uh on 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 netflix or something when he was like you know high on on steroids in the middle of the night a few nights ago and he thought lost was a docu documentary series not a not a network drama i don't know well there w- there was no no plane crash it, right. and if there was a plane crash with
0: 500 people on it it would yeah, be a very very big story <laughs> yeah. it would be it, i know it, in fact there was a guy who was tweeting this out and i, I thought it was too risky to, to try to be funny on on twitter always always a bad idea saying that uh Yes, um, over Missouri today, two planes uh, crashed, uh, killing a thousand people. You know, this just happened. Oh, wait, no, that didn't happen. That's the number of people that died from the coronavirus today. Right, right. and it's almost like he's taking that because if a plane crashed with five hundred people, yes, that would be a huge story. But it represents about half the number of people who are actually dying every single day with the coronavirus, every single day, day in and day out. So, what a strange moment that he had there.
1: A a very strange moment. And there's so many things, you know, that you never just never know where something like that gets into Trump's head. But it is, it is the reality that, you know, Trump has tried to um, figure out some way, you know, to make this election, which which is his core strategic imperative, right? Which was, if this was going to be a referendum on him, and therefore a referendum on his management of the most you know the most devastating pandemic since the 1918 flu. He was going to lose this election, so he had to do, you know, what Barack Obama did successfully in 2012 and George W. Bush did successfully in 2004. Make the election a choice, and then and then d- disqualify his opponent. In this case, Joe Biden. He spent months and a billion dollars trying to do that. Right? They've thrown every possible argument that they could come up with at Biden. He's a socialist. No wait. He's a tool of the socialist. No wait. He's senile. No wait. He's a corrupt, part of a corrupt crime family. You know he, all of that stuff. None of it has worked. And extraordinarily, something that we rarely ever see in American politics, Charlie. You go through a, a presidential campaign. You always take on water. You start out. You just won the nomination sure. of your party. You're pretty popular. And by the time you get to election day, with all the negative ads and all the 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 the, the, the scrutiny from the press. You are less seen less favorably than when you started out on that journey, right? Joe Biden today has a higher net favorable, has a, has, has a positive net favorable rating, which he did not have six months ago. Joe Biden has gotten more popular, has become more, seen more favorably by the American public over the course of six months in which Donald Trump's campaign spent a billion dollars trying to demonize him. Biden is now seen more favorably than he was when it started. That is an amazing thing. It speaks not just to Biden, some of the Biden's enduring strengths, but also speaks to the abject failure of Trump's ability to turn the turn the page or change the subject away from COVID because it turns out that COVID is just too big to be ignored. It is too big. The thing you just said a second ago. Two hundred forty thousand, whatever the number is now, two hundred twenty-six thousand. What's the number as of today? I think probably about
0: two hundred twenty-six thousand. Yeah, All
1: right. Two hundred twenty-six thousand dead Americans now. On our way, according to some estimates, to four hundred thousand dead Americans by February. That is just a subject too large to be to be shunted to the side and to and it and it and too devastating a statement about Trump's inadequacies as a leader. Uh, you know. I just, that's, of course, Trump's fantasizing about all kinds of crazy shit, because this is, you know, again, the realization is setting in that he can't outrun this thing and his culpability in it. You, you know, you mentioned about the Biden's favorabilities. Um, I, I think
0: one of the underrated stories of the year has been that Joe Biden's run a pretty good campaign, hasn't he? I mean, it may frustrate folks because he's not as active and as visible. But at this point, it appears that the basement strategy and letting Trump be Trump was a
1: Pretty inspired idea. A hundred percent. Yes. A hundred percent. I mean, we're truly, I mean, you know, and, and a lot of Democrats were very frustrated when Joe Biden won the nomination. Not not, you know, a lot of people on the progressive wing of the party who had hoped for Bernie Sanders or hoped for Elizabeth Warren. And there was this other argument from the from the mainstream, you know, more centrist part of the party, which turns out to be larger than the progressive wing of the party, which is why Joe Biden won the nomination, who all said, Yeah, we get it. He's not the most electrifying candidate. And he's a little bit of a old shoe and, you know, he's not, you know, the greatest he's and he's, he's lost, you know, some, some miles an hour off his fastball. He's not the can't, he's not the, he's not the performer that he was even, even five or six years ago. And yet he's going to be incredibly culturally inconvenient for Donald Trump in those states that are the easiest path to 270 win back Wisconsin, the state where you are Mm -hmm. the king, right? Win back Michigan, win back Pennsylvania, Um, that's the way, that's the fact that the the easiest route for Donald Trump, for for Joe Biden is those states. And in those states, the cultural affinity that that Joe Biden is is a good cultural fit for those states will make it hard for Trump to demonize him. That electability argument, which was always the most powerful argument for Biden all throughout the Democratic domination fight, turns out to have been true. And his campaign did a remarkably good job in that period of time when people were like, you go in the basement. You got to get out of the basement. Donald Trump's dominating the airtime. You guys got to get out there. You yep, guys yep. got to go campaign more. They like said, "Nope, we're going to ignore all that cable chatter. We're going to ignore all that Twitter commentary, and we're going to stick to this very disciplined uh, strategy." And it they they up till today, you can't other you can't do anything other than tip your hat and say, "You guys had a remarkable degree of discipline here, and it's paid off."
0: Well, we were talking about the uh, the Bobulinski gambit that they were hoping was going to uh, be the replay of two thousand sixteen. Of course, you know when they trotted out Bobulinski, millions of Americans said, as you pointed out, "Who, who is that?" Yeah. The, the, the one story that I would encourage people to read is this amazing thing. I'm sure you've seen it. Uh, ben Smith's piece in the New York Times. Yeah. Trump had one last story to tell. The Wall Street Journal wouldn't buy it. Inside the White House's secret last ditch effort to change the narrative and the election and the return of the media gatekeepers. So much going on there. Basically, you know how they tried to plant this story with the Wall Street Journal, this uh, the smear on, on, on Hunter Biden. Uh, then it went around and, and, and touted it, but lacked the discipline to wait on it. And then the Wall Street Journal did what the media used to do. It, it said, you know what, we're not buying this. We don't see this. We're not uh, going to take the bait. And the way it just all blew up on them, it's, it's a, it's a hell of a read. That's a hell of a story.
1: It is. And you know, the, the, the white house reporter who they turned to, to try to peddle this thing, I, if, 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 if anybody had quietly come to me on the side, not that I would have ever conspired in this way with the Trump campaign, but if somebody had said to me, Hey, Mike Bender from the wall street journal, you know, is this a good conduit for this trash? I would have said, you know, Mike Bender would work. Mike Bender worked for me at Bloomberg. Um, and mm-hmm. he's a serious guy and he's not going to be a conveyor belt for trash. If there's not anything here, you're not going to be able to just, you know, whitewash, kind of uh, launder this stuff through the Wall Street Journal. And, the, and, and so they looked at it and they called in the reporter from the, from the Hill who was on their team who had really followed the Hunter Biden stuff. They had a, a reporter from China. Uh, who got involved and really vetted that story and and did perform the traditional, like what were journalists supposed to do, you know, yeah. actually like check the thing out. But I think the best part of that story, Charlie, that I found most delightful was you will recall that Trump got on that call with his supporters yeah. and he touted it in advance. And so there's a big story coming from the Wall Street Journal, you wait. And apparently, according to Ben Smith's reporting, there was a very negative reaction within the Wall Street Journal's newsroom to that, which was like, so trump is they, they did not like the idea that trump was characterizing the wall street journal's news pages as essentially a conveyor belt for his oppo hit on joe biden and that i don't think that affected their judgment about the story itself but in the climate of a place like the wall street journal newsroom which always is struggling with the fact that they don't want to be associated with the with the op-ed page there you know you, trump again overplayed his hand it was like they, they couldn't even they, they, in so many ways it's screwed up. Trump you know does this thing that provokes a negative response within The Wall Street Journal. And then on the other side, you've got Steve Bannon and Rudy Giuliani, who are apparently were so impatient with the fact that The Wall Street Journal wasn't moving fast enough they took the the scummiest version of the story and 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 piped it, stove piped it to the, to the New York Post, which immediately made all of of, of all of my colleagues in the mass media look yep. at it and go, okay, Rudy Giuliani, Steve Bannon, it's in the new york post the person who wrote the story won't allow his byline to be on it and the woman whose byline is on it says she has nothing to do with it this story is a radioactive turd and we're not going to touch it that you know it's a, a comedy of errors and and i think to make the serious point not just a comedy of errors but the signs of a of a wildly desperate flailing campaign that is clinging to a thing that in an age of COVID and the worst economic climate since the since the depression by many the Great Depression by many accounts, like how many voters give a flying fuck about yep. Hunter Biden and any of this stuff? Right? It well, just was a comically handled, but also terribly badly misjudged. To think that this would cut ice. With voters in this in the moment we're currently living, that this would be the thing that would turn the tide against Joe Biden and towards Donald Trump. But
0: here's also a reminder that that when the mainstream legacy media takes its gatekeeper role seriously, it can make a difference. I thought the the quote from Bannon in this in this piece was interesting, that his philosophy was was it anchor left, pivot right? Yes. That basically, would you you basically plant your shitty story and get some mainstream media outlet like the New York Times or the Washington Post or the yes. Wall Street Journal to run it, and then what you do is you amplify it throughout the conservative media, which yes. they did very effectively. Four years ago, with Hillary Clinton on a variety of things, including her finances. Yep. But when the mainstream media basically said, "No, we're not. We're not doing this. We're not going to yes. eat your shit sandwich," it really did show the limitations of what we, we had been, you know, talking about of the of the right wing media to set the agenda. So this was one of those times where the right wing media figured it could play that again, and it didn't work. Right. The Bannon
1: quote, which I'd never heard from. I Bannon never heard before. either. No. Anchor. Anchor left. Pivot right, right? Yeah. And that, of course, was the 2016 strategy. And I remember, you know, in that Peter Schweitzer book when mm-hmm. Clinton Cash Maybe came too. out and they had an exclusive with the New York Times to, to – they gave it all those things exclusively. The Times did stories on the basis of the Peter Schweitzer book and and at Bloomberg, we looked at it and, you know, and Bloomberg Businessweek wrote something about it and everybody was like, you know, on – not knowing they were being manipulated by Steve Bannon and not knowing who Peter Schweitzer was, but everybody wised up after 2016 and they saw – the ways in which they had been played. And so this whole cycle, it's been true that the mainstream press, the traditional gatekeepers have been much more skeptical of all this stuff coming out of Trump world. And thank God, after four years, that we finally got wised up to it. But this was, again, as you point out, a great example where there was no way for them to – They tried to anchor. I mean, the Wall Street Journal is not exactly anchoring left, but yeah. um, at least they, they tried to anchor center and pivot right, and then it was clear that they couldn't anchor anywhere. And so all you had at that point was the was was the, was the New York Post and Breitbart. I, you're
0: not going to be and, able to do it if it's just Breitbart and the Washington Examiner and the New
1: York Post. Right. In fact, it's not only you're not going to be able to do it, but it's going to send up all these war- – It sends up all the red flags in the world for everybody. And in, in, tr- in truth, the Hunter thing has had – The Hunter Biden thing had the appropriate, not just in the Wall Street Journal, but in general, most of the mainstream press immediately when it came out in the post, like the only way they covered it was, let's talk about Rudy Giuliani. Let's talk about his dealings in Ukraine. Let's talk about whether this is a Russian disinformation, uh, potentially a Russian disinformation gambit. That's the way in which it got covered. It wasn't just that the mainstream media ignored it, but they covered it in in an outwardly skeptical, appropriately outwardly skeptical way. That's again another one of the many traps in which Donald Trump's finding himself right now, which is that, you know, no one's everybody's everyone has is now woken up and is wise to the games they play and the tricks they attempt. And he's now out of options. And yet he keeps playing the
0: greatest hits. I mean, yeah. that, that that's where he's at. He he's he's trying to recreate the final weeks of 2016 because that's that's his only that is his only playbook. By the way, I just can't overstate how influential it was back in 2016, because you mentioned the Peter Schweitzer book and the fact that it was in the Washington Post and the New York Times, you know, because back then I was still on the radio, very anti-Trump. But but I took that very, very seriously, that hit job on Clinton, because it had the validation of those papers. Now, of course, Peter Schweitzer is like writing for Breitbart. Yeah. But 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 four years ago, he was considered to be a very, very credible source and yes. be, beca- because of that anchoring. OK, so let's play this game that we have to play um, for the last eight days of the campaign, what is it that we are possibly getting wrong? We all have the PTSD, which has now become a cliche, from four years ago. I'm looking at the numbers. I'm looking at the congressional district numbers. I'm looking at the swing state numbers. I'm looking at, at the breakdown of the early voting, you know, what you're seeing from African-American voters in, in Georgia and it, et cetera, all the stuff that we're all looking at. And it looks to me pretty clear, but there's always that doubt. So in your mind, what do you worry you might be getting wrong?
1: Well, I think you know that the, if you look at the you know there's a handful of things, um, you know you look at this Republican. It's been pointed out by many people at this point that there's been you know this Republican registration advantage yeah. uh, in some of these battleground states. There's there's it it seems that there is if you think about the the untapped um, you know what what where is the the vote that's out there that among people who did not vote in 2016. Uh, and might be induced to vote in 2020. There's a larger upside for Trump among non-college whites out there than there is on the other side. And so, you know, is it possible that it's not that that the that the Trump campaign, having blown a billion dollars uh, in one sense, uh, trying to discredit Joe Biden and disqualify him, that somehow that the investments they made over the course of the last few years in digital and trying to identify those white non-college voters, that those actually in the end will somehow pay off. And we're gonna see, uh, a thing that surprises everyone at this point, that the, we know Republicans are going to, that Trump is going to perform well on election day, or at least we think he will. We know mm-hmm. that Republicans are not, are more likely to vote on election day. Democrats are more likely to have voted early. Is it possible that there's a disproportionate, even larger disproportionate impact of that than we expected? And something to obviously keep an eye on. The other thing, of course, is that Trump I think and you think about demographics, right, he does seem to be overperforming with with uh, Latino voters uh, in certain areas. We also have seen the other thing that's a little hinky out there is, you know, he spent a fair amount of time trying to, not so much to improve his, his standing with African-Americans, but to try to discredit Joe Camp Biden down, with African-Americans. Yeah. So you've seen like, you know, is there, I mean, I sound like a nut saying this, but like, is there a Kanye Ice Cube, you know, kind of... Thing that happens that somehow depresses African American turnout in the end for Biden that he ends up un- underperforming on his on his numbers with Black voters. I'm you're asking me to kind of fantasize here, right? These are all well, seeming plot. I'm laying all these things out, and you're right. going to say, John, no, all no, those, no, those are all, those are all the things that I worry about too. Yeah, to they all seem. The, yeah, they're all a big stretch, right? I mean, I found well, my, I find myself not convinced by my own arguments. But you're asking me to make a list of things that you know if on election day we look up or in the days following we look up and say, "Holy shit, I got this yeah. wrong." What will be some of the breadcrumbs that we follow back? I think they will be along those paths, but I don't like right now believe in much of that.
0: No, I mean, in terms of like the, they have a different word than suppression for the the African-American vote. It was a big story in one of the Florida newspapers about the efforts being made in Miami-Dade County to discourage african-americans from voting so i mean that 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 is that is going on um i made a list of things like you know you know what would have to happen and most of them were events that have not taken place i mean if you know if, if the debates had uh, had gone terribly wrong or everything so now we're we've sort of eliminated all of the i know knock on wood events it is these the questions about whether or not we're getting the the electorate wrong so so here in wisconsin it would have to be um that you would have this huge surge of white non-college educated voters from the western and northern part of the state who would turn out who did not turn out four years ago um is that going to happen are the numbers big enough because you know here if the african-american vote turns out high, see one of the formulas in wisconsin up until 26 well it's actually still through now is republicans could tell you what the vote turnout had to be for them to win. And if it got too high, they knew they would lose. So lower right. turnout off your elections tended to work for them. You know, the the, the major general elections you know, were, were bad news for, for them. But Donald Trump, and I keep reminding people of this, Donald Trump won Wisconsin getting fewer votes than Mitt Romney. If Democrats actually turn out in the numbers that they can, they are capable of turning out. Um, he's going to have a very, very tough time here. And people forget in 2018, a Democratic U.S. senator won by double digits here in a state yeah. where everything had been razor thin. So it is possible. So
1: yeah. I mean, look, the, the main thing is um, here's the, the, the overarching thing is that in the same way that COVID has been the dominating event of 2020 has had cultural, social, public health, Economic implications that have dominated all of our lives and have reshaped the race in a foundational, existential way. The th- it is also the case that it is causing, and we're seeing this in one respect now in terms of this unprecedented, in, insane uh, surge in early vote. But it's it's also going to affect uh, the way in which Amer- it's already affecting the way in which Americans vote. We've seen it already and it's also going to have some effect on election day like on the actual election day vote. We think we have an idea of like what that will look like. But it's you know that's the large overarching if you take away all these like demographic things and this and that, right? What what is we are headed into an unknown and unpredictable election day because of covid. And I'm not I don't know exactly what I even mean by this except to say Covid has transformed everything it's touched. It is also transforming the way in which we vote in this election, and it makes talking about election day a little bit more of a shot in the dark because we've never had an election we've never in our had life anything
0: times. like this, no. right? Where the
1: pandemic's been going on. So, what will that do on election day? I mean, does that you know? I've heard compelling theories from people who say you know because of the surge happening in battleground states right now that it could be that even Republicans who are diehard Trumpers will be scared off from voting. I've also heard people convincingly say, those people are all so crazy, they're going to show up no matter what. And and, and every Democrat who might possibly vote for Biden will be scared off because they've seen that the early vote has been really high. So everyone will kind of not get complacent, but the combination of some combination of complacency and fear will reduce the Democratic turnout in a way that's like dramatically, unpredictably reduce dramatically and particularly higher reduction than people imagine. I mean, is there some math that we could all figure out where the COVID of it all somehow breaks in just in Donald Trump's way to a degree that is unimaginable? I suppose, I mean, I just, you know, we never, we have no precedent for this. And so- That's the larger thing that I guess makes you a little bit uncomfortable about being too predictive about election day. Well, and the fact that
0: there is no election day anymore. Well, it's election election month. I mean, I'm old enough to remember when we used to have these debates about, you know, should election day be a holiday or maybe we should have elections on Saturday. And then you wake up and it's like, well, wait, we're we're having an election for a whole month. And more people have voted in some counties than voted, have already voted, than voted uh, in, in total in 2016. So everything is different. I wonder whether or not we're misinterpreting some of these early voting numbers. It feels like we're in the midst of this voter revolution. And I know that we've spent a lot of time worrying about the voter suppression efforts and the lawsuits and the potential for many ballots being spoiled or not being counted afterwards. But I, I have a gut sense that this has sparked this massive backlash and that you're seeing this in the early votes, the, the mail-in votes. And I, I just think that the Republicans this year, it, it really strikes me, they've, they've gone all in on this strategy of making it as hard as possible for certain people to vote. And maybe this was a latent tendency for many, many years, but now they're saying the quiet part out loud. That, um, and they've internalized the idea that the more people that vote, Uh, the worse it is. But the the fact that they're so overt about it, this strikes me as not a good look for the Republican Party. And you can't tell what's going to happen in states like Georgia or Texas short term. Long term, the arc strikes me as headed towards political oblivion if the Republican Party becomes so associated as the party of being the party of voter suppression.
1: A thousand percent. A thousand percent. And I think I think you're right. I think that it's that there's been more of it on the part of I don't know. You still consider yourself a Republican? I can't no, remember. No, right. no, not anymore. So on the part of your former party, there's been a lot more of it uh, in in decades past than people wanted to acknowledge then. But it's certainly way more pronounced now. And the reality of you know Donald Trump, you know, in an election in 2016 when people thought that you know, the, the what people used to call the coalition of the ascendant, that the demography was going to, you know, Ryan's Priebus in 2012, doing the Republican autopsy after 2012 and saying, we have to change to be more open to the rising cohorts in America, right? Instead, in 2016, the Republican Party t- doubled, tripled, quadrupled down on white men, uneducated white men, basically. And... The fact that Trump is in that box demographically has made it more essential that the party try to suppress the votes of everyone who's not either a non-college white or an aging white in mean, a handful of these key battleground states. They had to be more overt about it at this point because the only way to suppress the vote to the degree they 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 were needing to uh, was to, to was to be really overt about it. You couldn't keep this. You couldn't do this on the down low at this point, right? The scale of it was so large that it was going to have to be overt but I a thousand percent agree with you. You know, you can't fight, uh, you in the end, demography wins. Right. And, and the reality is that if the Republican party is ever going to have a future, there are a lot of things that are going to have to happen in the long run. But, you know, among those things is being seen as not just not conducive to people of color, uh, younger people, uh, you know, women, uh, people of, of diverse uh, sexual uh, dispositions and orientations, like th- that that is not only you have to be open to those people, but but you have to be encouraging of those people of all of those right. cohorts. And if you spe- if you get positioned as the party that is actively trying to suppress the votes of everyone like that, including you know, all of those diverse groups plus anyone who's who's downscale at all. Uh, if that's what your what your brand is, you are screwed over the long run and i think that that is what the party looks like right now to an awful lot of people and that among for i mean there are a lot of things that are that are uh, strike me as profoundly dangerous uh, to the extent there is a republican party anymore and i'm not really sure there is yeah, anything right. that resembles a republican anymore, party anymore but god knows you are not going to be uh, able to be a viable party going forward, let alone a majority party going forward, if, if voter suppression is your brand. Well, also, I just sense no
0: understanding um, among Republicans, but also on the conservative media, I, I just don't sense any full understanding of the importance of the issue of voter voting rights to the African-American community. That this just doesn't even seem to register with them. I mean, they'll sort of go through the motions, you know, talk about voter ID, you know, and voter integrity and voter fraud and yada, yada, yada. But I don't think that they fully understand the historical resonance of this specific issue. You know, the march in Selma was after the Civil Rights Act had been passed. It was about the Voting Rights Act. This runs deep. It's the one thing that they need to motivate if they're they, it is certainly one thing that would motivate a massive turnout of African-Americans. And I think yeah. if they do flip Georgia going back earlier, it's going to be because that issue has become top of the agenda. I mean, Stacey Abrams may not have won, but I think she succeeded in putting out this issue in all of those attempts, which were so ham handed to limit the African-American access to the polls. I think is you're 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 going you're going to see this in some very significant turnout and and it's long term going to be just deadly for Republicans.
1: Yes. And look, you know, there are a lot of things, you know, we are all still getting our heads around what it means that there have been, you know, 54 55 million votes cast um, as of Friday last Friday already. And you know, some of that is no doubt about COVID. Um, some of that and the expansion of of early vote. And mail-in voting, um, and and people focused on you know on that. Some of it is all about Trump, you mm-hmm. know, and and the enthusiasm among a lot of Democrats and negative enthusiasm to just you know get Trump out of this office, and they want to get their votes cast and counted as fast as possible. But I do think part of it is the thing you're suggesting, which is a little bit of a of, a, of an extended collective middle finger at anyone and any force and any institutional attempt to try to suppress. Uh, the voices of people who, you know, have who want to speak and have been trying to speak and saying the same thing really for the course of the last three and a half years, where every attempt, every time, there's been a proxy fight over Donald Trump on the ballot in midterm elections, off year elections, by elections, special elections. The country has been trying to fire Donald Trump by proxy for the last three mm-hmm. and a half years, and and I do think one factor in why there's been this unprecedented outpouring of early vote is, uh, again, just you know one, COVID, two, Trump, but three, the overall thing of like, don't you dare try to shut me up right now when it feels like the stakes of this election are so high and so much is on the line. And if you're going to try to do stuff that is perceived as trying to keep me from having a voice in my future, I'm going to emphatically go out early. I'm going to stomp my feet and say, not going to shut me up here. Here comes my vote and here comes my preference. And, you know, you're not going to hold us back. I think that's part of what's going on. You see it in Georgia. I think you see it in other places too. I agree. John Heilman, host of Showtime's The Circus, executive editor of
0: The Recount, frequent guest on MSNBC. Thank you so much for your time today and being so generous with your time on the podcast.
1: Charlie, it was an absolute delight. And hopefully, in some point, you know, I may be passing through your neighborhood between now and Election Day. And uh, if I am, I will look you up. Well, you know where you know where I am. And I yeah, I want to see those right dogs again, buddy.
0: <laughs> maybe Don't we'll let us. you see the puppy now because he's he's gotten big and maybe he's gotten a little bit more disciplined. So, John, thanks a lot. And thank you all for listening to today's Bulwark podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We will be back tomorrow. We will do this all over again. There are just eight days to go until Election Day.